I have five married kids. And my, my, my father-in-law was the, is the former temple president of the Manti Temple, and he has performed all of the ceremonies. So I've watched my father-in-law, and my grandfather performed mine. And so I've watched my father-in-law, which I know well, perform multiple wedding ceremonies. When my oldest was married, when I was married, my grandfather, it was really beautiful and personal, but what you got back in that day was a whole lot of personal advice from the sealer. And if you happen to get a good sealer, it was a good session. If you got a boring sealer, I be believe me, I've been to a lot of boring sealings that was like, can we just get this over with and seal this couple? Because you are killing this ceremony. But it was always the opinion, it was always the, here's what I think would make a successful marriage. It was always opinion. It was very rarely doctrine, or I think you should do this, or hey, you know. And then I watched my father-in-law over the course of my different kids kind of change the message from the beginning. Last summer, my fifth son, my fifth child was sealed. And this time he came out and said, we have been instructed not to give any personal advice. And honestly, my first thought was, yes, hallelujah. He said, instead, we have been instructed to renew, review the five covenants made in the endowment. And all of a sudden, a light went off on me. And it was like, this is the culminating ceremony built upon the endowment. And that when my wife and I knelt across that altar and were sealed, the covenant we were making wasn't a new covenant for that room. It was all the covenants we had already made. Culminating. My marriage is based on those five covenants. If I break the five covenants, I'm breaking the ceiling. And for me, that was a huge eye-opener. And I vowed right then and there to make the five covenants far more common in my thoughts and in my classes than ever before in my career. And so at the thought of teaching this class, I thought we're going to spend some significant time talking about the five covenants. Now, the church doesn't make a secret of what they are. They're all over church materials. They're in your handbook or they're in your gospel library. So I think we all know what the covenant with the five covenants are. But I love the emphasis to focus on these five covenants. So what we've been trying to do in this class is the idea that I would suggest that what we do in our chapels is that transition from telestial to terrestrial. Those of you who've been through the temple know that the gist of that journey is from Heavenly Father's presence onto a created world. We watch that world fall. And then we travel through a telestial world and into a terrestrial world. Then we travel from a terrestrial world into a celestial world. And once we make it into the celestial world, we make it into the Father's presence. And that pattern holds true in the Old Testament tabernacle. That outer courtyard was the telestial area. 
And as you came by the altar of sacrifice and the laver, you came into the holy place, which is the terrestrial world. As you pass the objects of the terrestrial room, you go through the veil into the Holy of Holies. It's the same idea we go through in the temples today. It is the journey out of celestial and into terrestrial. Out of terrestrial and into celestial. And I, in my mind, I separate them by where we make those covenants. Primarily, where do we make this transition? Where do we make the covenants that first promise to come out of the celestial and into the terrestrial. These we make in the chapel. Now, tell me whether or not all five of them are included in temple ordinances. Do we wait and make them in the temple or are they part of the chapel ordinances? Do we promise obedience only in the temple? No, do we promise sacrifice only in the temple? Isn't that assumed in our baptismal covenants? In fact, isn't the baptismal covenant the sacrifice of the natural man, burying him in the water, and then coming out without him? There is sacrifice all over our chapel ordinances. Gospel, chastity, consecration. So what then is the difference between the covenants we make in the chapel and the covenants we make in the temple. That's what we've been trying to focus on, is elevate our covenant keeping to a new level. So we started last week with obedience. What is it that you promised when you were baptized? And how is that different than what you promised when you went to the temple and were endowed with power? What's the difference between chapel law of obedience and temple law of obedience? Anyone want to summarize last week? Dion? It was basically the difference between doing, because, doing something because you have to and doing something because you want to. Okay, so may I use new words today to kind of set the stage. We, we come out of the celestial and enter the terrestrial when we have a discipline of doing good. I'm disciplined. I commit it. I am committed and I have developed a discipline of doing good. What then would be this word? A dis okay, good, I like that one. I'm gonna use this one. And I may spell it wrong. A disposition. In other words, what am I changing? This one is a change in how I'm going to, I'm going to change what I do and I'm going to commit myself to doing it. This one is a change of wanting to do it. Temple obedience is to promise and commit to change my disposition. I want to be a celestial person and celestial people obey <clears throat> commandments. I don't want to do it grudgingly. I want to. Okay, so now let's take a look at sacrifice. Tell me what you see 
in the law of sacrifice. Adam was taught sacrifice very early, right? I'm commanding you to sacrifice an animal. After a while, why are you doing that animal? I don't know, Adam. Why are you doing that, Adam? I don't know. Except for what? I promised to do it. I promised to do it, so I'm doing it. And then the Lord says, let me teach you why you're doing it. And he begins to introduce the need for a second law. So why do we need the second law? And then what's the temple version of that second law? Let me show you several places in the scriptures where he teaches the need for a second law. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Let's do the rich young ruler. Great place to show the difference between obedience and sacrifice. And then to kind of set the stage for what's the difference between chapel obedience or chapel sacrifice and temple sacrifice. All right, Matthew chapter 19, New Testament. Matthew 19, the rich young ruler. Now, what's the heart and soul of the question that Jesus is trying to answer? Joseph Smith once said, I have a key that unlocks the scriptures. I ask myself, what was the question that brought forth the answer? So tell me, what's the question that, for which the answer was the rich young ruler? Verse 16. Matthew 19, 16. Behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good, thi- what th- good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So what's the heart and soul of the question being answered? How do I get to eternal life? How do I get to eternal life? Okay, what's the first answer to that? End of verse 17. Keep the commandments. The first law of getting to eternal life is keep the commandments. And he says what? Which? First he says, which? Which commandments? And Jesus lists them. To which he responds, verse 20, all these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? I have been obedient. Let's be clear. I have been obedient. Am I ready for eternal life? If I just master my obedience, will I have eternal life? And the answer the Savior gives is no. No, because I know your heart. Allow me to paraphrase a little bit and personalize it. I know that there are issues in your heart that are going to conflict with your obedience. And the only way you'll ever master obedience is if you get rid of those issues in your heart. So he gave him a command for him. He wasn't giving a general command. He was giving him a command, knowing what was in his heart. So what was the specific command? Go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor. And he couldn't do it. He couldn't let go of his possessions. 
Now, as soon as he's done, Jesus turns to the 12 and says, let's talk about you. Now, clearly what that man was holding on to was the lure of having earthly possessions. But is that the only thing we have to let go of? No. And so every one of us along the way is going to face Jesus and we're going to say, look, I'm, I'm trying to keep the commandments. Is there more than keeping the commandments? And he's going to look me in the eye, know what's in, in my heart, and he's going to give me a commandment. There are things you are holding on to that are going to interfere with your obedience. And in your case, Bryce, here's what I command you. And it would be a piercing let go of. Do you see the need for a second commandment? So in my brain, the way my brain works is, this is all the things I have to do in order to be a celestial person. This covenant is to do them. This covenant is to change my desires and want to do them. And then he follows that with, this is everything that's going to get in the way. Here's everything that you have to discard on your journey. There are people who will not leave the telestial room because they are not willing to let go of telestial things. Do you remember that example from President Kimball years ago on how to catch the monkeys in South America? You ever heard that story? President Kimball in 1976, uh, at the, the bicentennial of the country gave an incredible, wrote an incredible article for the Ensign called The False Gods That We Worship. And in it, he told about some researchers that went down to South America to capture these monkeys. Now they were small and fragile, but very intelligent. How do you catch a fragile, intelligent monkey? You can't use a snap trap You'll damage them. You'll hurt them too much. You can't put a banana under a box with a stick and wait for them to go to get them. They're too clever for that. How do you catch an intelligent, fragile monkey? So they drilled some holes and simply filled the holes with the, the monkey's favorite snack, knowing that the monkey would put their hand in the hole to grab whatever fruit. And as soon as they made a fist, what could they no longer do? pull their hand out. Now, all the monkeys had to do to be free is let go. But they wouldn't let go, and it led them into captivity. Now, there are three rooms, three worlds that the temple illustrates. One is a telestial room, one is a terrestrial room, and one is a celestial room. It's really simple. Heavenly Father really doesn't need to judge us. Who will go to the celestial kingdom? Those who are holding on to celestial things. If you're holding on to celestial things, it'll be really easy to decide who goes to the celestial kingdom. Really no judgment on God's part other than the fact that you can't let go of these celestial things. Therefore, this is the kingdom you're going to go to. 
Now, some people can let go of telestial things. They get out of the telestial room. They get into a terrestrial room. And guess what they discover? I cannot let go of terrestrial things. So who goes to the terrestrial kingdom? It's not a judgment call on God's part. It's just you. You chose your kingdom because these are the things you hold on to. Who goes to the celestial kingdom? It really is a simple matter. Who enters the Father's presence and goes to the celestial kingdom? Those who let go of telestial and terrestrial things. If you are willing to let go of everything telestial, everything terrestrial, then you get to go to the celestial kingdom. Let me show you a fascinating scripture. Turn to Doctrine and Covenants section 88. Doctrine and Covenants 88. I want you to see that the choice about which kingdom I go to is my choice by what I hold on to and what I let go of. If I can't let go of terrestrial, I have made the decision pretty easy. The celestial kingdom cannot help me so section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants says, let me just show you this fascinating introduction. Okay, verse 6, Jesus ascended up on, hall, uh, on high, descended below all, in that he comprehended all things, that he might be in all things and through all things the light of truth. Then it calls Jesus three things. Jump to verse 13. Jesus is light. What's the second thing? Life. And the third? Law. So the next three sections are Jesus as life, and then Jesus as light. No, light, and then life, and then Jesus is law. But here's what he presents. When he presents that Jesus is law, look at verse 34. Again, verily I say unto you, that which is governed by law. Now that's my choice. Do I, am I governed by celestial law? Do I yield to celestial law? Now celestial law says you got to let go of everything terrestrial. If I yield to celestial law, then what can the law do? The law will first preserve me and perfect me and sanctify me. But can the celestial law preserve, perfect, and sanctify me if I'm holding on to terrestrial things? Do you see the doctrine? It's not that God doesn't like me. It's not that I haven't schmoozed the teacher well enough to get an A. The law can't help me. Celestial law cannot perfect me if I don't yield to it. And so there are three, well, there are two worlds I have to let go of. And just as soon as you figure out, hey, you've made some progress in letting go of the telestial, now the Lord says, come into my house and let's have a whole new conversation. 
there are things you are holding on to that are preventing the celestial law from preserving you, protecting you, perfecting you, and sanctifying you. You are preventing the law from helping you. And the only way you're going to get that is if you let go. If you let them go, give them up, burn them on the altar, offer them to God, whatever you want to view it, will you let go of everything terrestrial? And that's the law of the temple. Will you get out of the terrestrial room and get into the celestial? So what then is the hardest thing to let go of? What is the most terrestrial thing I hold on to? I think we could make a pretty decent list of celestial things I need to let go of, right? I think, the, I, think any, I think any member of the church, can you tell me the things I shouldn't be doing? I think my nine-year-old could answer that question. I think my nine-year-old could give me a pretty good list of things I shouldn't be doing. But I don't know very many people who can tell me, what is it I have to let go of to get out of the terrestrial room? We don't have those conversations. The reason, I think one of the main reasons we don't have those conversations is where do we have this discussion? In, in the temple. But would you ponder for a moment, what has the temple taught you are some of the things you have to let go of in order to enter his presence? Dion? I find myself thinking of when they explain the gospel, the, the gospel covenant. They mention uh, loud laughter, yeah, evil speaking of the Lord's anointed, um, taking the name of God in vain. They mention but I don't think you struggle with any one of those. I know you well enough. I don't think you struggle with any one of those. So go a little bit deeper. Tell me what you struggle with. Tell me what we as a people struggle with. I have never demeaned the Lord's anointed. And I think calling the Lord's anointed a fool, an old man, is more here than here, right? So what, was, what might he be referring to when he's thinking of you? Dion, you are still in the terrestrial room. Because of the Lord's anointed, how do you get out? Do you see what I'm asking? And again, I don't know that this is the time and the place to have the full discussion. I'm inviting you to say, what is the temple asking me to let go of? Now that I'm in the temple, I know what I had to let go of to get into the temple. What am I having to let go of now that I'm in the temple? You want to go a little bit further? Um, one that had spoken to me was distraction. Okay. So I think a great discussion for me to have with the Lord is, 
Will you let go of some of your distractions? Are you willing to sacrifice some of your biggest distractions that keep you from focusing on eternal things? I think that's a great conversation for me to have with Heavenly Father. Keep going. Any other thoughts? This is an uncomfortable conversation, isn't it? Because we don't talk about this very much in the church. But tell me what good temple attending, worthy of my recommend, members of the church need to let go of in order to walk into his presence. Let me throw one out. Let me throw out what is most likely the last thing I'm going to toss out on my road to the celestial kingdom. I love this quotation from Neil A. Maxwell, and I'm so sad that you guys weren't born. He was so phenomenal. Do you guys know who Neil A. Maxwell was? Oh, my goodness. He was so good. Not to demean any of the ones, but I just, I hope you go back and discover Neil A. Maxwell. He was phenomenal. He had cancer. And he taught about the struggle with his cancer. But let me read this one. Um. Each of us might well ask, in what ways am I shrinking or holding back. Meek introspection might yield some bold insights. For example, we can tell much by what we have already willingly discarded along the pathway of discipleship. For some people, it's their pack of cigarettes. Oh, look at my pack of cigarettes. I threw them out the window years ago. I'm so happy. I'm so much better because I threw them out on the pathway of discipleship. It is the only path where littering is permissible, even encouraged. In early stages, the debris left behind include the grosser sins of commission. Later debris differs. Things begin to be discarded, which have caused the misuse or the underuse of our time and talent. I think that's fascinating what you said. Later debris differs. Things begin to be discarded which have caused the misuse or the underuse of our time. The invitation that the temple is asking, are there good things not evil things that I know need to come out of my life. Are there good things that are distracting me from celestial things that I need to let go of? Let me do one more. Just my job is not to make an inclusive. This is not the time or the place or the building in which to have a full conversation about what is What is the Lord asking me to let go of to get out of the terrestrial room? 
that final leg of the journey out of the terrestrial and into the celestial. Let me tell you one of the things I know I'm going to wrestle with for my whole life and will probably be the last thing I throw out. It is what I constantly talk to Heavenly Father about when I go to the temple and leave the terrestrial room and are invited into the celestial. It is my biggest obstacle. Years ago, C.S. Lewis wrote an incredible book called The Great Divorce. It has nothing to do with marriage. It's not about marriage. It's about the divorce of heaven and hell. Or in this case, the divorce of celestial and telestial and terrestrial. The story is about a group of ghosts from hell that go on vacation to heaven. They get on a bus and they go to heaven. And when they get to heaven, it's really the outskirts of heaven. Heaven's up there in the mountains and they kind of park down here in the parking lot. But when they get to heaven, they are told every one of them can stay if they let go of the one thing that's keeping them in hell. It's a fascinating concept. You can stay in heaven if you'll just let go of the one thing that's keeping you in hell. And then these angels come down to invite them up to the mountain. And in that conversation, it becomes obvious what is the one thing they're holding on to that's keeping them in hell. Every one of them but one get on the bus and go back to hell rather than stay in heaven. Now, I won't, I, we won't talk about that one today. I want to talk about one of them as an illustration and an invitation that the temple is making that each one of us have to decide what are the terrestrial things in my life that are keeping me out of his presence, out of the celestial room. So let me just read one of the conversations between ghost from hell and escort into heaven. And you tell me what he's holding on to. What is it? that's going to keep him out of the celestial room if he doesn't let it go. He's a painter. It starts with him saying, oh, I should like to paint this. Now his escort. I wouldn't bother about that just at present if I were you. Look here, isn't one going to be allowed to go on painting? Is there no painting in heaven? When you painted on earth, at least in your early days, it was because you caught glimpses of heaven in the earthly landscape. The success of your painting was that it enabled others to see those glimpses too. But here you are having the thing itself. It is from here that the messages came. There is no good telling us about this country for we see it already. In fact, we see it better than you do. Oh then there's never going to be a point in painting here? Oh, I wouldn't say that. When you've grown into a person, there'll be some things which you see better than anyone else. One of the things you'll want to do is to tell us about them, but not yet. At present, your business is to come. Come and see, he is endless, come and feed. There was a little pause. Well, that'll be delightful, said the ghost presently in a rather dull voice. Come then, said the spirit, offering it his arm. So how, how soon do you think I could begin painting? It asked. The spirit broke into laughter. Don't you see? 
you'll never paint at all if that's what you're thinking about. What do you mean, said the ghost? If you're interested in the country only for the sake of painting it, you'll never learn to see the country. But that's just how a real artist is interested in the country. No, you're forgetting, said the spirit. That is not how you began. Light itself was your first love. You loved paint only as a means of telling about light. Oh, that was ages ago, said the ghost. One grows out of that. Of course, you haven't seen my later works. One becomes more and more interested in paint for its own sake. One does indeed. I also had to recover from that. It was all a snare. Ink and paint were necessary down there, but they were also dangerous stimulants. Now listen to this line. This line gets me. Every poet and musician and artist, and I would add teacher, but for grace is drawn away from the love of the thing it tells to the love of the telling. It doesn't stop at being interested in paint either. They sink lower, become interested in their own personalities, and then in nothing but their own reputations. I don't think I'm much trouble in that way, said the ghost stiffly. That's excellent, said the spirit. Not many of us had quite gotten over it when we first arrived. But if there's any of that inflammation left, I love that phrase. If there's any of that inflammation left, it will be cured when you come to the fountain. What fountain's that? Oh, it's up in the mountain, said the spirit, very cold and clear, between two green hills. When you have drunk of it, you forget forever all proprietorship in your own works. You enjoy them just as if they were someone else's, without pride and without modesty. Oh, that'll be grand, said the ghost without enthusiasm. Come then, said the spirit, and for a few paces he supported the humbling shadow forward to the east. Of course, said the ghost, as if speaking to itself, there will always be interesting people. Oh, everyone will be interesting. Oh, yeah, I, to be sure, I was thinking about people in our own line. Shall I meet Monet and Rembrandt? Well, sooner or later, if they're here. What? You don't know? Well, of course I don't know. There's, I've only been here a few years. All the chances are against my having run across them. There are a good many of us you know, but surely in the case of distinguished people, you'd hear. But they aren't distinguished. No more than anyone else. Don't you understand? The glory flows into everyone and back from everyone like light and mirrors, but the light's the thing. Do you mean there are no famous men in heaven? They're all famous. They're all known and remembered and recognized by the only mind that can give perfect judgment. Well, then one must be content with one's reputation among posterity then, said the ghost. Oh, my friend, said the spirit, don't you know? Know what? 
that you and I are already completely forgotten on earth. What? Exclaiming, what? Exclaimed the ghost, disengaging its arm. You couldn't get five pounds for any picture of mine or yours in Europe or America today. We're dead out of fashion. I must be off at once, said the ghost. Let me go. One has one's duty to the future of art. I must go back to my friends. I must write an article. There must be a manifesto. We need to start periodicals. Then we must have publicity. Let me go. This is beyond a joke. And without listening to the spirit's reply, the ghost vanished. Now, where'd he go? He back on the bus to go back to hell. What couldn't he let go of? What is perhaps one of the last things we throw out on the pathway of discipleship? Now, do I need to lose my identity to throw out my pride? Am I less of an individual if I throw out my pride? I am not. But it is my pride that is going to keep me in the terrestrial room if I don't someday let it go. Or a thousand other stories. So when you go to the temple and you make a covenant to obey the law of sacrifice, and then you get out of the terrestrial room and go into the celestial, what is it that in your real life is keeping you in the terrestrial room? In the lectures on faith, Joseph Smith said, three things are necessary in order to have faith that leads to salvation. The idea that he exists, a correct understanding of his attributes, character, and perfections, and the idea that the way you're living is pleasing to him. It's in that last lecture that Joseph Smith, I know you know the quotation, you probably didn't know that it came from the lectures on faith. And it came from that last section where I need to know that the way I'm living is pleasing to Heavenly Father. Joseph said this, for a man to lay down his all, his character and reputation, his honor and applause, his good name among men, his houses, his lands, his brothers and sisters, his wife and children, even his own life, counting all things but filth and dross for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, requires more than mere belief or supposition that he is doing the will of God. But I found in that a list. For a man to lay down his all, his character and reputation, his honor and applause. If you do good, do you need people to notice it? Or does it lose something if they don't? So often, that's that terrestrial quality. Are you willing to let go of your applause? Now, 
couple more scriptures. The difference between people who got to the tree and stayed at the tree. What was the difference? You know, you know the tree of life. What was the difference between people who got to the tree but didn't stay and the people who got to the tree and stayed? The main one is where they were looking. Where are they looking? And where were the people who left looking? I need you to acknowledge me. I need my applause to feel of value. Now turn to 1 Nephi chapter 8. Who stayed at the tree? 1 Nephi chapter 8, right there at the very end, verse 30. Who stayed at the tree? Who didn't leave? Who ate the fruit and wasn't ashamed and stayed? Right there at verse, at verse 30. When they get there, tell me what they do. They fall down. Now that is a connection to another group of another scripture. Do you remember, Nephi is going to have a vision of this tree. And John had that same vision. So turn to Revelation. Go to Revelation chapter 4. Because once again, when the saved go into heaven, it says that same thing. So Revelation chapter 4, New Testament Revelation 4, tell me, let's see if we can add to this idea that they fall down. All right, let me get there. Revelation 4, when the 24 elders get to the celestial, now notice in verse 4, they have crowns on their head. 24 elders sitting in white raiment with crowns on their head. In verse 10, tell me what they do. They take the crowns off and throw them to him. They fall down and they cast their thrones before the throne. Tell me why. What are the, what's the act of throwing my throne? I'm a king now. And I take my crown and throw it to him. And this is a celestial being. Why would a celestial being take his crown and throw it to God? I can only see two reasons. Number one, it's admitting I might have my opinion of what royalty is, but it's nothing compared to your royalty. I love that. Another one is attributing like the only reason I got here was because you gave it to me. Both of those are an act of I have given something up. I am here because I let go of something. And this is not my crown. It's his crown. I don't want to wear my crown because his crown is better than my crown. In other words, it's a letting go of me. I think we have conversations all the time about what needs to be sacrificed to be a good member of the church. But we don't have the conversations that the temple is asking us to have. What do good members of the church who have made it all the way to the terrestrial room need to let go of in order to make that final journey into his presence?
Am I holding on to something that's keeping me in the terrestrial room? And this is where I don't think we can have group discussions. We can have group illustrations, but what is it that you're holding on to that's keeping you in the terrestrial room? Now we, none of us are going to make it in this life. This is not intended to be something we do, but the journey is clear between now and then. There are some things I need to give up. I need to give up looking at them. I need to give up caring about what they think. I need to give up my applause and the need for you to notice what I've done. And I think that list goes on and on and on. But I invite you when you make that covenant, when you in that temple covenant to obey the law of sacrifice, Take a moment and acknowledge what you've already sacrificed. There are things I have littered on the pathway of discipleship and I'm glad are behind me. I don't do those anymore. And I'm so grateful they're behind me. I've made some great progress. But then have a sincere discussion with Heavenly Father about what are the good things, the terrestrial, these aren't bad things. What are the terrestrial things I'm holding on to? that are keeping me in a terrestrial room and not allowing me to fully fall down at his feet and be in his presence. I would invite you to have those conversations with Heavenly Father in his house. It is, it is going to take everything that I have to throw everything out the window that is keeping me out of his presence. But every time I make that covenant, I am reminded, I'm promising, Lord, I am coming. I'm coming, Lord, slowly but surely. I'm coming. Help me. Help me identify the things I'm holding on to that need to go. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.